So good to be with you. My name is Lisa Rodriguez Watson. I am one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. Welcome. I know you've already been welcomed, but I'm going to welcome you again because that's always good and that's the way Jesus does. Always welcoming. Um, welcome to the folks there um, in virtual land on YouTube. So good to have you with us. Um, so we've just begun this series um, called Truth and Lies. And I'm really excited about this series. I think it's actually very practical and, and helpful and will help us know how to follow Jesus more faithfully. Um, I'm indebted to Pastor Andrea because last week she used the concept of an earworm, a portion of a song that plays over and over in your head, to illustrate how the lies we believe set themselves up in our mind and just run on play nonstop. Now, um, anybody else earworm the very first time they heard that word? Just me? Okay, me and Kate, good. Um, yeah, I'd never heard that before, so thanks, Drea. Always helpful in getting a good education. Um, this, this week, I was more aware of the songs that had gotten stuck in my head. I don't know if that was your experience as well, but I was like, oh, it's an earworm. <laughs> Here it is. See, it's playing in my head. Um, and I was also having good conversations with my family about them, like, hey, remember how we talked about this? And then I would be singing a song and Matthew would go, oh, you're singing a song. I was like, oh yeah, let me walk a little faster so I can get this song out of my head. Um, my daughter, Annalise, is super into musicals. She enjoys singing and she enjoys music and so do I. So it's a fun way for us to bond and connect over something that we both enjoy. We spend a lot of time in the car commuting to school. Um, so we listen to musicals quite a lot. Uh, favorite musicals, anybody wanna just give me a shout out? What's your favorite musical? Singing in the rain. Hamilton. Hamilton. Yes. Wicked. Wicked. All right. Good. Good. Anybody else? Sister Act. Two. Sister Act. All right. Good. Yeah. Two. Thank you. Clarifying. Sister Act. Two. Got it. I'm with you. Thank you. Well, there was one other one over here. In the Heights. Yes. And what you said? Book of Mormon. Okay, all right, good. See, you all are musical-loving people just like me. That's wonderful. Um, so uh, I have three musical soundtracks on my Spotify that are on rotation. Over and over, it began with Hamilton a few years ago. We still love that one. Um, the Greatest Showman, I don't know, you know. Yeah, okay, good. We're familiar with that. Um, and then a new one for kids, mostly better Nate than ever. Anybody familiar with that? Okay, well... You can check that out later. We also have songs from Coco and Encanto, and we just over and over, right? Uh, so as I began writing this sermon this week, I'm just literally sitting at my computer. Something's going on in the back of my mind, and I'm completely unaware of it until I am aware of it. And when I did bring to my attention the lyrics, they were, break free, break free from The Greatest Showman, a song called Come Alive. There's a little irony there, isn't there? I'm writing a sermon about the lies that we believe and how they're like earworms, and my actual earworm is the lyric break free. It happens at the big musical moment in the song where everyone's singing the loudest and all the harmonies are there. Break free, break free, and come alive. It's a beautiful truth. And it's hilarious to me that that was the earworm at the beginning of writing this sermon. When we unmask the lies and the twisted truths that we are so prone to believe, we're able to break free from them. Once we're free, we do come alive in the sense that 
that we're free from the negative narratives that keep us stunted from becoming all of who God has called us to be. We're no longer held captive by the twisted truths. We're free to live and to be our fullest selves. I love the graphic that we're using for this series. There's, there's a fullness and a completeness. Maybe we can get that up on the slide. Um, there we go. There's a fullness and a completeness to the word truth in the graphic. Just like real truth, it's whole, it's complete. Nothing is obscured or hidden or distorted. The word lies on the graphic also does a great job of visually representing the nature of lies. There's, there's true substance there, right? Like there's an outline, but it's hollow. There's an emptiness there. When we believe the lies and leave them unmasked and unnamed, it's as if we are balancing our very lies on a half-truth and there's a pit of emptiness and deceit and confusion that if we're not careful, it's just so easy to fall into. And we get trapped. The truth part of the lie is too narrow and it's insufficient for building our lives on. And when we believe and build our lives on lies, we become captive to small and narrow living. But standing on the full, firm foundation of truth, which comes by knowing the person of truth, where there is no dangerous emptiness or hollow, that's where the fullest life can be lived. Drea gave us another gift as the preaching team this week. When we began developing this series, she laid out its purpose and what the hopes were. And then she asked, what are some of the lies that we should preach about? And before she literally got the sentence out of her mouth, I like raised my hand like an eager first grader. Me, me, I know a good lie. <laughs> I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And I said it, and I was like, I, I know, I know I'm right. And there was this little bit of shame, because truly that is a lie that I wish I didn't wrestle with so much. The gift that Drea gave us is that she remembered who said which things, and then she gave us the chance, Valen told us, what we would be preaching on. And guess what that means? I did a whole lot of thinking and praying and listening to podcasts and going back and reading old sermons and journaling, reading articles. I talked with friends even about how the preparation of this sermon would probably surface that lie in me again. In the preparation of the sermon, I would have to be battling, am I enough? It's a gift to be given the chance to confront long-held lies and trenched truths that hold us captive. So, Drea, thank you. And it's a bit vulnerable to admit, but one of the lies I often battle is that I'm not enough. And it could show up any number of ways, and maybe not just for me. I wonder if you resonate with any of these. I'm not competent enough. I'm not intelligent enough or witty enough or articulate enough. I'm not savvy or winsome enough. I'm not hospitable enough or educated enough. 
I'm not cool enough. I'm not creative enough. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not organized enough. I'm not outgoing enough. I'm not confident enough. Sound familiar? The lie might also surface in a narrative like, who do you think you are? Or maybe it's comparison-based like, you're not like them. You can't do that. You can't be that. It's come up for me in the past in the question of what are you even doing? You're going to fail. I remember a time a number of years ago when I was given the opportunity to speak to a group of women at a church. It was a wealthy suburban church in the South. And that was my first time speaking to that demographic, as most of my ministry up to that point was with college students in California. I felt completely insufficient for the task. I imagined that these women had some standard of excellence that I was never going to live up to. All right? And, and so, I, like, these ladies, were, they were the kind of women who would, like, go to a Beth Moore conference, right? Um, and if you don't know Beth Moore, she, like, she's one of the best. Um, she's, she's perfectly Southern, and she's funny, and she tells great stories, and she knows how to understand and unpack the scriptures in very accessible ways. She's like this. And I was like, they expect Beth more, and I'm just me, and I'm going to fail. I am not going to be enough. They're going to think that I am boring and irrelevant, and then I'm never going to be asked to speak again. Fortunately for me, I have a wonderful husband who was like, that's nonsense. Like, come on now. Like, let's, let's think about what you can do, and let's just do you. Yeah. Yes. The lie of insufficiency, however it comes up in you and me, is insidious. It's subtle and it grows gradually and its effects will be treacherous if we don't notice it and name it and get free from it. The difficult thing is that lies can be tricky to notice and name because most lies hold a shred of truth. They're somewhat believable and correct. Am I sufficient? Are you sufficient? Are we enough? The answer is, of course, yes and no. There's no easy cliche answer or binary yes or no to this very difficult, deep question and lie that we face. And I think the complexity of whether we are or are not enough is poignantly illustrated in the biblical passage that we're looking at this morning. The story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's a significant story. In fact, so much so that it's one of the four, um, it's, it's one of the stories in the four Gospels that, um, well, it's told in all four Gospels, and only just a few of them are except for like the stories of Jesus during his last week of life. Most of those are told in all, four, in all four Gospels. But this is one of the stories that is also told in all four Gospels. So it's significant. Um, we're going to take a look at two different characters in the story, Philip and Andrew. So, you know, the context of the passage, and, 
in a variety of the, of the Gospels, like the, the disciples, they're out and they're doing ministry with Jesus and they're very busy healing, teaching, ministering, doing all sorts of things. In the book of John, Jesus actually has been like defending himself and his authority against the Jewish leaders of the time. So here we are. Um, as the chapter opens, Jesus and the disciples cross the Sea of Galilee, perhaps into the town of Bethsaida. It's sometime in the spring, near the time of the Jewish Passover festival. Jesus had invited them to a quiet place to just get away and rest for a little bit on a mountainside. And just when they thought they were gonna get a break up on the mountainside, they realized that was actually not going to happen. Quite the opposite, in fact. The passage said, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew what he had in mind to do. And Philip answered him, it would take almost a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Jesus was testing Philip. Sometimes our faith gets tested too. Can I get an amen? Yeah. yeah. I feel like I get Philip. He's practical, and with razor-sharp precision, he cuts through the nonsense, and he gets straight to the issue. He doesn't have time for questions like, where out here on this vacant mountainside are we going to buy enough bread? What Philip sees as the problem is that their resources are insufficient. What they have is not enough. It won't even scratch the surface. He sees the undeniable absurdity of the situation and the task that Jesus has put him to. He's unafraid to take stock of the problem and name it. 5,000 men, plus women and children, conceivably 15 to 20,000 people, a whole year's wages, wouldn't even get everyone a meal. Just a bite for a whole year's wages, gone in one day. Everyone is still hungry, by the way. That is not a solution. Man, I resonate with Philip. He knows when there's not enough. He easily recognizes the deficient and the insufficient, and he's honest about it. And like Philip, sometimes all I see is what I don't have. I take stock of the impossible around me, and I realize I'm not enough, which is true, but is also untrue. Yeah. Philip misses two important things because he's focused on what they, what he doesn't have. He overlooks the opportunity to see what he does have. Even more, he misses not just what he has, but who he has. I battle my inner Philip more than I would like to admit. I see what I don't have. I forget who I do have. What about you? Are you like Philip? Do you see the impossible and get lost in the lie that you are not enough? Do you forget not just what you have, but whose you are? If so, how do you navigate that? I think there's a spectrum of ways to respond when we think that we're not enough. On the one end of the spectrum, there are those of us who disengage. We see the scene, we assess the odds, 
we figure it out and we figure that we're not enough and fold. Quit, done, out. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those of us who overcompensate. We figure that we may not be enough and so the only way forward is by sheer force. Beware anyone who gets in the way because they're bound to become unfortunate collateral damage. We claw our way to the top, step on, stepping on, trampling over whoever we need to in order to make sure that people know that we're enough, even as we wonder if we really are. Many of us wrestle with the lie of I'm not enough, but how it gets expressed may be different. Thankfully, Philip isn't the only disciple in the story. There's another disciple named Andrew. How does Andrew respond in this situation? Verses 8 and 9, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Andrew's like who I'm becoming on my better days. He doesn't just focus on what there isn't. He notices a little kid who has a little brown sack lunch for his family, five, five loaves of bread, two fish. Andrew doesn't know how it's going to work, and he's honest about that. But he comes to Jesus with what he has, and he asks such a great question. How is this little bit going to meet that great need? I know this isn't nearly enough, Jesus, but you're here, and me, and this little guy, we're here, and they're here, and so what are you going to do with just this little bit? This is insufficient, and I know that, but you're the sufficient one, so here you go. It's all I've got. Do you resonate with Andrew? Do you find yourself wondering what Jesus is up to at times when your challenges feel insurmountable and you feel insufficient? Do you find the strength and faith to say, here you go, Jesus. It's, it's, it's small what I have to give in the face of such huge challenges, but here you go anyway. My job's a mess and I can't fix it. But I have these skills and I think you can do big things with small gifts, so here you go. Maybe your job's fine. Maybe it's your family. Oh, my family is, is, is hurting and, and I'm hurting and I don't know how to make it right and hold it together, but here, here's this little bit of right that I know how to do in a space that feels so full of wrongs. Can I give it to you so that you can do more with it than I can imagine? I think there are days when we all wonder if we're enough for the challenges in our lives, whether they're health challenges or mental health challenges or relationship challenges or otherwise. In addition to that, or maybe directly linked to it, depending on how close to privilege we are, 
We have serious issues of injustice around us. Economic injustice, education injustice, criminal injustice, housing injustice, all kinds of injustices, health injustice. It can feel overwhelming and, and maybe we are tired, but still, we bring our fish and loaves to Jesus and say, I don't know, but I know you and you know how. Do it, Lord. Bring your justice and let your peace reign in this place. I only got a little, but with you, it's enough. I am not enough, but I am enough because you are enough. I hope we're a church full of Andrews, finding ways to give Jesus what little we find or what little we have, trusting that Jesus can do the rest. As a church community, we will be stronger for it. Our community here in Rosedale, in Trinidad, in Hill East and beyond will be stronger when we bring whatever gifts and talents we have, even if they're insufficient for the task, to work together with others for the common good and the flourishing of this place. We need to bring what little we have. The scripture moves the scene along rather quickly but I imagine there being some space between Philip and Andrew's answers and Jesus then moving on to give instructions about how to feed the people. It may be just a moment or two. In that space, I imagine Jesus looking with approving eyes at Andrew and that little boy, almost with a thanks guys and a wink. And I imagine Jesus inviting Philip close, maybe, maybe even holding his hand in that moment so that he wouldn't feel far and rejected because he had gotten it wrong. So that he could see and maybe remember next time that it's true that he is not enough, but that isn't the whole truth. Yeah. It's only part of the equation. It's only partly true, and so it's still a lie. I imagine Jesus would have had them there all close to close out that moment with them because of how this moment matters. There's truth and freedom and no place for shame and guilt. And I believe that Jesus would make sure that Andrew and Philip and the little boy knew that before he, he went on with his, his instructions to the crowd. And so the story concludes. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When confronting the lie of I am not enough or you are not enough, the truth is that we are not enough. And 
whatever we are is enough because Jesus makes it enough. He takes what we have, which is beautiful, by the way, because we are made in the image of God. He takes what we have, and even though that beauty is mixed up with our brokenness, it's enough when given in surrender to the one who is all-powerful. And the problem comes when we try to be enough without Jesus. Whenever we attempt to always have the right answer or always be enough for every relationship in our lives, enough love or time or resources, or whenever we try, try to achieve perfection so that we can prove to ourselves and others that we are enough, we become further bound by our own attempts to be something we were never created for. You see, only God has all the right answers. Only God has enough resources for every single human being on the planet. Enough time, enough love, enough energy. Only God. Only God is perfect. Only God is enough. God didn't create you or me to be God. So God is pleased when we live fully into our humanity in complete acceptance of ourselves with all our limitations and all our beauty and all our incompleteness. That is enough. I love how pastor, author, and chaplain Steve Cuss um, reminds us of this truth. He says, you can relax into the grace of God today by remembering that all God wants is a human-sized you. All God wants is a human-sized you. Isn't that freeing? Relaxing into the grace of God is where freedom is found. But I gotta tell you, it takes practice. It takes practice. It's more than just intellectually assenting to something and then pretending like the lies aren't there. It could, you know, like I don't want us to fall into the trap of just being like, oh, um, God knows I'm human and so I don't have to do anything to confront the lies. It's, it's more than just forgetting. And it takes practice. It takes vulnerability with God to name and surrender the lies we believe so that we can relax and trust God. We have to hear him speak his truth over us to help us dispel the lies that we have. It's worth repeating what, what Matthew said and Andrea shared last week. If we want to hear the truth, we have to attune our ear to the one who speaks the truth. And do you know what the truth is? Jesus spoke this to Paul back in 2 Corinthians. My grace is yeah, sufficient yeah, for you, for yeah. my power is made perfect in your weakness. Let that word of truth sink in today. Yeah. Do battle with that truth on the lie that you are not enough. Yeah. One last passage rocked my world as I was preparing, and, and I think it's, it's so relevant for so many of us. Well, maybe I should just speak for myself. 
It comes at the end of the book of John. And, and it's Peter, Andrew's brother, this time in this story. Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples, and, and he had rejected Jesus, just as Jesus had predicted. After Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he comes back to Peter and restores the relationship with Peter, as well as Peter's role as a disciple. It's a really, it's a really beautiful exchange of restoration and love and forgiveness. And so all of this happens. Jesus, Jesus restores Peter. Peter's like, yes, Jesus, you know I love you. And Jesus is like, well, let's get back to, to work. Let's go. And then, and then this. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Oh, huh. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. See, man, it doesn't take a long time for us to forget, right? Peter and Jesus just had this phenomenal moment. And not two seconds later, Jesus and Peter are walking and Peter goes, oh, there's that guy over there. John, you really love him. Hey, Jesus, what about him? And he loses sight of Jesus, and Jesus immediately corrects him. And he says, why are you worrying about that guy? You must follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Don't lose sight of me. Jesus says to us, when we play that awful killer game of comparison. You must follow me. I have everything that you need. Don't look at so-and-so. Don't look at what they have, wondering if you're sufficient. You must follow me. Peter compared himself to John. He centered John instead of focusing on following Jesus. Even seasoned followers like you and me do that. The narrative of I'm not so-and-so will ensnare us with a quickness. And Jesus, full of grace and truth, will say and remind us, follow me. Yeah, but follow me. To live in truth and dispel the lies in our lives, we must follow Jesus. We must attune our ear to his truth and his ways. We have to be reminded because like Peter, we so easily and quickly forget. Verse 